trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where we can safely gather to revel in wrong think. It's made possible by great sponsors like Dixie Chiropractic, HSLAmmo.com, SewingandQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, as well as the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Hey, I'm very happy to welcome my friend Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos back to the show. Eric, we get together once a week, kind of take an assessment of what's happening around us, and it never fails. There's, there's always so much to talk about. There is, and I'm very grateful to have this safe space to, to start out my week with. Well, a lot's happened since the last time we talked. Uh, I mean, um, I don't know if you have any strong opinions on uh, the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, but my, my, yeah. I've, ne- I've never seen the political left so upset within such a short space of time. Second Amendment upheld in a decision the day before, then Roe v. Wade overturned. I just, I have to wonder what's next. Well, one of the most fascinating aspects of this is that the hysterical left, which is very, very hysterical about choice, as they style it, uh, it's it's halting because uh, no choice has been denied to them. All that's happened is that the this federal Supreme Court has ruled that there is no federal right to an abortion and therefore has remanded the, de- the decision back to the states where it's up to the states to choose to decide. And people still have the option to go to a state uh, where they can exercise that particular choice if they want to. But uh, it's interesting to me because it shows that the left is not interested in choice unless it's a choice that that they think we, we, we must all agree to. Bingo. And, and think of all the people who are so agitated right now. I'm guessing a very large percentage of them are the same people who insisted that uh, for people like you and me who did not want the jab, you know, well, you have no choice yeah. in that matter. You know, it's not your body. It's not your choice. My, how the tables have turned. Yeah, in fact, I was watching a, um, uh, a bit of on-the-scene reporting. I think the Gateway Pundit sent somebody out, out to the Supreme Court where the lefties are protesting and posed just that question to them, uh, whether they were in favor of the vaccine mandates and whether they thought there was a contradiction there as regards my body, my choice. And, of course, that elicited vociferous and violent foot-stomping responses rather than any kind of reasoned uh, response along the lines of, yeah, gosh, you know, I never thought about it that way. You make a valid point. That's something people will never do. Wow. Well, it's it's bringing out the true colors of those who wish to control everybody around them and those of us who simply want to be left alone. And I, I guess you and I yeah. fall in that latter camp, and I'm grateful for it. There's another topic that uh, you touched on recently, and that is as, as inflation is uh, wreaking havoc on the economy as we're seeing household incomes struggle to keep up with the increasing cost of, of gas and groceries as well as housing costs. Talk to me about BlackRocking. What exactly mm-hmm. does that mean? Well, it's, it's a gigantic uh, capital management company. Uh, there's another one, I think it's Vanguard. And uh, the scuttlebutt basically is that these companies have been uh, buying up lots and lots of private residential real estate. Um, it's part of what's been driving the explosion in the price of real estate. They, they make cash offers on properties uh, and therefore outbid ordinary people like you and me who are looking to buy a house. And 
know, the question that's begged there is, well, okay, what's the point of that? Why are they, why are they buying up all these houses? And one of the possible answers, which is quite alarming, is that they intend to rent these properties back to the people who can no longer afford to buy a house, and potentially even people who can no longer afford to rent. I came upon some interesting numbers the other day about uh, the number of Americans who potentially are not going to be able to make their rent payments anymore because rent payments have been going up, and also the the holding and abeyance of rental payments during the quote unquote pandemic that's come to an end. Oh yeah. So approximately seven million people are in danger of being kicked out of their rentals. And uh, these people make uh, $25,000 or less a year. And so what's going to happen to these people? Are we going to have a 7 million strong army of homeless people marching around? Or uh, is this crisis, and I put it again, and everything is going to be used to proffer the solution. The solution is that the government is going to pay the rent for these people who will then be moved into these BlackRock properties, many of which are in suburban areas of the country and specifically red state areas, so as to feed those areas with a class of government-dependent people so as to, to change not just the demographics, but the politics of those areas. Yeah, I'm thinking that's probably not going to go over particularly well, but I guess the bigger question is, does this seem like a part of some larger strategy or some part of a larger plan? It does to me. Uh, you know, I think at this point, you don't have to be a great prophet to foresee what's what's in, in the works. And what's in the works is the attempt to create some kind of an authoritarian socialist regime in this country in which the majority of the population is ensurfed, by which I mean they are uh, financially beholden to the government for their daily bread, literally. Uh, and, and they won't have a roof over their heads or any food in their bellies unless they bow their heads and do what they're told by the government. Part of this is this UBI thing that a lot of people have been talking about over the past couple of years, the universal basic income, uh, whereby people are just going to be given money to do nothing. And, you know, of course, that's actually not, not an accurate way to put it. <clears throat> the thing they're going to be required to do is obey in yep. return for their daily business. And that is a scary proposition, considering some of the things that we have been uh, informed. You must do this. You don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the last couple of years, I think was was one of the bigger consolidations or power grabs that uh, that we've seen within our lifetimes and it sure seems like there there's every effort underway to make those changes permanent sure you know the one thing about the left you got to give it to them is that they do play for keeps they you know they don't monkey around they don't fool around and they certainly don't uh, allow any of the impediments that might cause a person who isn't utterly amoral to pause for a moment and say i'm not willing to do that uh, you know, obviously examples that include the masking of kids, the jabbing of kids, the jabbing of all of us, uh, the wholesale mass unemployment of unessential workers, et cetera, et cetera. They don't care because ultimately the one thing they do care about is power, period, and whatever it takes to get power. No, I, I would agree. It's uh, it's a tough time. Anybody who's shopping for a home right now knows uh, even if you can find a home that's decently priced, those rising interest rates uh, are often enough to break you know, a person's ability to, to qualify for, for a 30-year mortgage. And and even rent, at least uh, where I live here in the Intermountain West, because of the influx of people, finding a good rental right now is uh, is really, really difficult. And it's, of course, very expensive because of the increased demand. Yeah, I mean, it's a catch-22. The rents are so high now uh, that a lot of people can barely afford to pay them. And so that means they can't afford to accumulate the capital necessary to put a down payment on a house. And meanwhile, the cost of housing continues to go up, and at the same time, the buying power of our money continues to go down. So people really are 
uh, caught in between a rock and a hard place. And it's obviously not just housing. Uh, it's food, it's gas, it's diesel, it's practically every commodity, every necessity that you can think of. Well, and I think you are wise to sound the warning of beware. You know, where there's crisis, government is always willing to step in, but there's going to be strings attached. No matter what the solution is that they offer, you better believe it will be to the advantage of whatever bureaucrats or politicians are, are trying to administer the program. Sure. One of the things I wish people would give more thought to uh, is this almost childishly naive idea that there are no strings attached when government helps you or gives you something. There always are. And is it better to uh, to be beholden to the government or to be in control of your own destiny in your own life, uh, not being beholden to whoever has the strings over your life? Yeah, I know how I would answer that question. But then again, I also understand uh, people like you and me, we're, we're kind of, we march to the beat of a different drum and we're not in, in lockstep with, with so many people. I don't know how you break that, uh, that mindset that, well, you know, it's, what's happening is right and government is, is there to protect us. Well, we really have, I think, uh, you know, broad brush, two classes of people in the country. And one class of people are the people who have become dependent on government. And that includes government workers, government contractors, people whose livelihood depends on the government. And they see the government as a beneficent force. And then there's the rest of us who get to pay for it all. You know, <laughs> and, right. and we have an opposite point of view. And I don't know whether those two points of views can ever be reconciled. Well, we've got about a minute here before we go to break, but I know Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute had an excellent mm-hmm. article on one of Trump's final executive orders, which would have made it possible to fire people within that unelected yeah. bureaucratic class. And you can guess, on his second day in office, that's one of the first things that Joe Biden, uh, you know, reversed. Yeah, that was called Title F or something along those yes. lines, I think, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and the idea being, you know, no matter who is in the White House or no matter who controls Congress, you still have this incredibly huge army, like millions of federal workers mm-hmm. that uh, that aren't accountable, you know, to the voters. And so that bureaucracy yeah, stays in place. It's the fourth branch of government. It's the permanent government. It's really what's meant by the term deep state when people use that that uh, that term. Yep. It's not just a, it's not just somebody's fantasy. All right, Eric Peters is my guest. We've got some more important stuff to cover here in the next few moments. If you go to my show notes, you'll find a link that will take you directly to Eric's site, ericpetersautos.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. I got to tell you, Eric, uh, I've had a very interesting conversation with my wife in the last week. Based on our conversation last week, about uh, you talked about strategic debt and particularly mm-hmm. uh, a trailer that, you're, that you were looking at. Yeah. And it got us looking, too, and, and just kind of mm-hmm. thinking, okay, if our money in the bank is losing, you know, whatever percentage inflation is, if it's losing its buying power at that rate, mm-hmm. what are some of the things we can do? Um, I also saw your article, Spending It Forward, and thought, mm-hmm. boy, that's, that seems like a very timely topic. Tell me a little bit about that mm-hmm. one. Yeah, well, both pertain to the same concept, uh, which – uh, devolves from these bizarre times in which we live, 
where it, counterintuitively, it may make more sense to spend rather than save, um, simply because whatever you save is being devalued at uh, an unprecedented rate. Whatever money you have in your pocket or money that you have in your bank is now worth, what, 15% less than it was worth about a year ago. So it buys 15% less. It's just been uh, vaporized just like that. Whereas if you had spent that 15% on something tangible of value, let's say it's a trailer, let's say it's food or ammunition, or in the case of the article I just wrote, firewood, uh, then you have something that can't be devalued by these external forces over which you have absolutely no control. Uh, and not only is it a thing of value, uh, potentially in a, in a worst case type of scenario, it's also fungible, meaning its value can be translated into other things of value. Let's say you have extra ammunition, extra firewood, extra food, um, but you don't have whatever other thing it is that you need, and your neighbor does. Well, you can barter and trade for those things, not necessarily having to use the increasingly worthless currency that we're forced to use to, to, to get those things. Now, I got to tell you, another part of the conversation that my wife and I had, and I don't know if you've been party to one of these conversations, was, all right, that that sounds all fine and dandy, but uh, what if the world still holds together? In other words, what if things correct? Do we do we have to live like there's there's some kind of, you know, impending economic doom? Now, personally, I think, uh, yes, <laughs> we do, because I, I really feel like it's coming. But uh, not everybody sees that. In fact, some people are actually kind of scared at the prospect yeah. that, that that might be well, on the horizon. Well, I think it's a false choice, because if you buy things that uh, are of actual value, you haven't lost any value. You know, it may be something that you don't need right away. Like, you know, it's summer. I don't need firewood right now. It's warm. But I'll certainly need it in the winter. Uh, so I haven't lost anything minimally. You know, if, if I were going to buy wood in the winter, uh, I would have had to spend the money anyway. And it's very probable that if I had waited until the winter to buy it, if it were even available, it would cost more than what I just spent to get it. Right. Yeah. So it makes sense to me. I don't think you lose anything. And the same goes with practically anything else that you can think of. That's not frivolous. I'm not advocating that people go out and, uh, you know, go to Disneyland every weekend. Not that that's not a fun thing. If you're into that, that's fine. I'm talking about, uh, you know, buying things that you that you are almost certainly going to need at some point in the future, or which are useful to you uh, as a hedge against the devaluation of our dollars. Yeah, I I get where where my wife is coming from, saying, well, you know, you've had this mindset for for a long time, and it's true. Mm-hmm. But I think the warning signs have been growing and building for a long time as well. And, you know, it's one of those places where I realize that it may sound goofy to some people. And if it makes me goofy, so be it. But I'd rather be goofy and and be wrong than than play along with what the mainstream's doing and, uh, you know, have, have missed a chance to be squared away. Yeah, you can, you know, if, you, if you're somebody who's interested in history and the history of economics in particular, you can discern these trends that over time inevitably lead to the same thing. And I think people like you and I who are interested in those things could see and predict this stuff 20 years ago. Um, but what happens out in practice is that incrementally it happens slowly. People don't really see it happening because it is incremental. Not that bad today, not that bad tomorrow. But then all of a sudden everything falls over a cliff. Things tend to happen very quickly in situations like this. And uh, that's what I think we're potentially facing that I think we're close to, in fact, having to deal with maybe you know as recently as soon as this, this coming fall. Well, and if nothing else... I think the most powerful economic lesson that any of us could have learned if we were paying attention 
was to look at what happened to the bank accounts of those uh, truckers protesting in Canada earlier this year and the people who tried to support them through various uh, crowdfunding, mm-hmm. you know, avenues. You know, the, the government came after them and, and they can come yeah. after anybody who is, you know, on the naughty list. If, if that's, you know, if they came after them, I guess it can happen to us. Yep. I mean, that is the banks have become every bit as tyrannical as the government. And in a way, they're worse because, and this is a pratfall for conservatives, they're private companies, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, they're not restrained uh, at all uh, in the manner that the government is somewhat slightly restrained by legalities. You know, the government may hesitate to do something because it doesn't have the legal authority or the authorization to do it. But if you're a quote unquote private company, you can go ahead and do it. You know, during the, the pandemic, that's exactly what these private corporations were used to do. No laws were passed telling people that they had to wear a face mask. Uh, it was simply done by private businesses in response to the government's pressure. And that's the sort of thing that worries me about the banks. They're no longer looking out for your interests as their client, as a depositor. Uh, they are fundamentally a proxy of the government. You know, it's well known that, for example, if you withdraw a certain amount of money or you deposit a certain amount of money or you just bring cash in deposited, they're going to squeal on you to the government. Yep, it's a scary time, and I hope that uh, I hope people are paying attention. I'm not saying it's time to run for the hills, but I would make sure that I understood that any money that you have sitting in the bank is vulnerable just by virtue of the fact that it's not in your hands and therefore it's under someone else's control. That's the key thing, I think. Uh, the broader macro point here is that to the extent it's possible for each of us, all of our circumstances vary, but to the extent that we each can control more things um, that pertain to our lives, the better. Uh, decouple to the extent that you can from all of these, these external and centralized entities, whether it's the government or corporations, that can at their whim arbitrarily mess with your life. You know, the more control you have over your life, the less control these entities have over your life. Here, here. And that's actually, I, I hope people understand, this is not gloom and doom we're talking about. This is the essence of what it means to be a free person. In fact, let's shift here in the last couple minutes that we have. Let's talk about uh, declaring independence as individuals. Yep. I loved your recent column on that subject. Yeah, thanks. I figured I'd write something given that the 4th of July is looming again. Uh, and, of course, people don't even refer to it as the, the thing that it was, which was Independence Day as an independence from the government of Great Britain. The problem with that is that uh, having ditched the government of Great Britain, a new government was erected here. And, you know, whether it was appreciably better uh, in terms of freedom for the average person is actually quite debatable. And I get into that in my, in my article. But, the, you know, the general point is that ultimately... Independence is about independence for the individual, that we are free people, each of us, and we have, uh, we have separate and equal rights, and nobody else has the right to regiment and order us and control us and police us. And I think that, that psychological principle has got to be reestablished, and if it can be, then perhaps we'll at some point be able to establish the political principle again. Here, here. But, it, but for people to, to declare independence, I mean, look, it's I, I think back to the office episode where uh, Michael Scott declares bankruptcy and just walks to the office declaring, I declare bankruptcy. It's not as simple mm-hmm. as just saying it out loud. You got to understand what exactly it means and, and what what the flow of authority is from the citizenry to government in terms of where mm-hmm. the real power lies. I don't think very many people mm-hmm. know that today. They don't. And it's also a two-way street. 
you know, we want to be careful not to be solipsistic and selfish and, and talk only about our independence as an individual. We must also uh, acknowledge and respect the right of other people to exactly the same degree of independence, meaning you may not like what, they, what they're doing, uh, you may not approve, but they have a right to do it unless they're hurting you and you should leave them alone. Uh, in fact, not only should you, you have a moral obligation to leave them be. Here, here. And I, I don't know the best way to uh, to get to that message across, but I hope people get it soon because it really appears that as a country, we're probably close to coming to blows over that very issue. Eric, I know. Well, hope- great to talk with you as always uh sorry we're up against the clock here but man i always feel better after a conversation with you if nothing else you remind me sanity is still out there likewise brian i appreciate the uh the time this is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I don't know if you heard, but uh, over the weekend, well, actually last Friday, pretty big decision came down from the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade overturned. Oh, you have heard about it? Well, okay, just just checking. Actually, I've got uh, one of my favorite writers, Grayson Quay, joining me. And Grayson, for folks meeting you for the first time, Let's uh, let's first of all flesh out who you are, and then then let's talk a little bit about the ruling and and the reaction. But first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, first of all, Brian, thank you for having me back on. I am the weekend editor at a publication called The Week, and then I am also a columnist for the Spectator World. Okay, and you have been one of the more principled conservative voices that I have followed on Twitter for some time. And when I say principled conservative voices, I mean, there are some people out there who are very polemic in the way that they approach things, uh, um, red meat throwers. You are very, um, you're, you're firm in your principles, but uh, never spittle flinging. Sorry, that's a really weird compliment, but I, I appreciate how you stand for what you stand for. Your reaction what did, what did you think when, when this decision finally was released? We kind of knew it was coming, but how did you feel when it, when it finally came out in the open? Oh, my reaction was, was pure joy. I, I literally cried tears of joy when it happened. Um, I was actually in D.C. at the time that it was, it was released, and uh, my editor messaged me. I got messages from five or six people at once. And my editor said, get down to the court. We want you to write something. So I hopped in an Uber and, and got there probably about 20 minutes after the decision was announced. And it was amazing. There was a big group of uh, pro-life people, a lot of them from the organization Students for Life, which does really good work. And they had a, a bubble machine going and were playing music and dancing in the street in front of the court. It was it was really amazing. It was a lot of really good energy there. I understand that uh, one of the people you ran into there was Randall Terry, who I believe was the founder of Operation Rescue. This guy's been in the trenches for a long, long time, trying to stand up for innocent life. What what was his reaction? You had a chance to talk to him, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, I did. I actually, um, I've met him a few times. I talked to him the night that the uh, the night that the decision leaked as well. And he said the same thing to me both nights. He said, this is, uh, this is D-Day, but it's not over till we get to Berlin. Um, this is uh, overturning Roe is a great step forward, but it's not over until abortion is illegal in all 50 states. And yeah, like you said, this guy's truly an amazing uh, uh, warrior for life. He, he, I think the estimate is that the protests he organized in the 80s and 90s uh, 
something like 90,000 people were arrested at these things. And when we say arrested, we're talking for things like praying outside of abortion mm-hmm. clinics as opposed to burning the town down and threatening Supreme Court justices and uh, some of the uh, some of the more common forms of, of protest that we're seeing today. Yeah, there's a there's a documentary that was made by um, that was made by Operation Rescue that really details the uh, police brutality that these people suffered uh, just praying or uh, or peacefully entering clinics to try to dissuade women from going through with their abortions. And it's really harrowing to watch. So with the, with the Dobbs decision out there, I mean, this this represents a turning point that, frankly, look, I've, I've been pro-life well, as long as I understood that uh, that it was an issue, I was adopted. My sisters were adopted. My wife and I just adopted a, a boy just a, a couple of months ago. Um, I'm very much on the side of, of, of pro life. Thank you. It's you know, it's something that's very near and dear to me. But I got to say, I never expected in my lifetime that we would see the Supreme Court actually step up and say, "This is not something the federal government should be dictating." Did it shock you that uh, that uh, we saw this turnaround? Well, it's interesting. The um, I was at the court with some friends of mine on Thursday waiting to see if the decision would come out, and it didn't. So I got home, and I was kind of tired from from uh, all the just chaos in front of the court. And I said to my wife, why don't we watch an episode of Seinfeld, just to unwind? It ended up being an episode from 1994 called The Couch, where uh, Elaine tells Jerry that she refuses to, to do business with anyone who's pro-life. And they're in a restaurant at the time, and he goes, oh, so, you know, you won't eat your, your dinner here? And calls the restaurant owner over, and the restaurant owner gives this very fiery pro-life speech, and Elaine gets up and leaves, and Jerry's mad because he doesn't get to have his meal. So later, she falls in love with a guy, and he says, well, what's his stance on abortion? <laughs> Elaine tries to bring the subject up, and this guy turns out to be pro-life, too, so she has to break up with him. But the whole joke there is this episode aired in 94, two years after Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which at the time was considered, you know, okay, the pro-lifers took their best shot at overturning Roe and it didn't happen. So, you know, Elaine's being silly. You don't need to worry about this this much. It's settled law. Um, and that's also 94, the year that I was born, uh, the year that this episode aired. So it's really interesting to see that, yeah, one time this was considered settled laws. It was thought that this was going to stand forever, that it was a super precedent or whatever. Uh, so it's really, really encouraging to see that this has finally happened. And I mean, I've I've only been on the scene since 94, and I wasn't uh, very politically conscious for the first few years there. So... Um, <laughs> Well, I, I very much remember my, my... That, that Seinfeld episode. And the thing that strikes me is Seinfeld was able to take what was then a, still a very divisive topic, but it didn't have that hard edge of violence and anger that we're seeing today. Talk to me about some of the reaction that you saw um, from those who, who did not want to see this settled law become unsettled. Well, I mean, the, the vitriol is, is truly amazing. And you, you just really see how the masks have dropped away on this issue over the years. We have come a long way since safe, legal, and rare. Um, so, for example, you have the, uh, you have the Satanic Temple uh, talking about how abortion is a, a religious ritual for them, where they say, you know, we, you have to let us do abortions for religious reasons. We'll, like, draw a pentagram and have the woman take the abortion pills in the pentagram that point it's like a little on the nose there guys um 
But this is what you really see. You see the, the whole shout your abortion movement. Um, and whenever TV shows, uh, comedic TV shows deal with abortion these days, it's generally in a much more hard edged way. Uh, the, you know, the message of, of Seinfeld was, you know, pro-choice, but kind of like, all right, let's all try and get along. And then if you take a show like uh, BoJack Horseman, which ended a few years ago, the message of their episode of dealing with abortion was that, um, that it's actually good to make jokes about abortion and take it lightly because it helps people not feel guilty about getting abortions. So we've, we've truly come a long way. No one talks about reducing the number of abortions anymore the way someone like Bill Clinton used to. It's all about expanding access. Yeah, it's to me, the if there's a bright spot in this, in a, you know, in addition to the fact that, you know, a, a horrific decision from nearly 50 years ago was overturned, it's that the line between light and darkness is becoming more clear than ever. And and that's a little scary because the darkness really feels like it's got some power on its side right now. But on the other hand, um, people are starting to show their true colors. I mean, some of the some of the people who, you know, did the videos decrying what what's happened here. I don't say this to be insulting, but but I look at the, their eyes and wonder, am I seeing demonic dynamics at work here which is just the rage and and the the look in their eyes it's it's really spooky you really see it and i think that i think this this is one of those issues that needs to be resolved um roe v wade really tried to find kind of a modus vivendi for the country that most people could live with it clearly it didn't work um and thank god for that thank god for the millions and millions of people over those 50 years who stood up and said, no, I'm not going to live in a country that proclaims uh, the murder of the unborn as a right. So, you know, what what uh, the court attempted to settle back in uh, the 70s is now unsettled. And we'll uh, we have another chance to try to resolve this. Um, I don't think that uh, a patchwork of different and conflicting state laws is ultimately going to resolve this. Um, I don't think the country can survive half pro-life and half pro-choice any more than Lincoln thought it could survive half slave and half free. What that resolution will ultimately look like and how we'll get there, I am not sure of and I'm very nervous about, but um, I'm glad that life has a chance. It's interesting. Rush Limbaugh, 30 years ago, said abortion would be America's second civil war. And and I remember reading that in his book, I Told You So. And uh, you know what? I, I don't think it's I don't think he was off necessarily the the parallels between slavery and you know it's not really a person that slave it's not really a person the fetus yeah. I mean we're we're seeing kind well, of a even similar legally, dynamic because now the issue is you have this practice that's legal in some states and not others and yep. uh, issues with crossing state lines to obtain it which brings up a lot of the same legal issues that were in play with the Fugitive Slave Act well um, it's, and I've seen I've seen legal scholars um, making this exact analysis. I'll encourage people to to read your your thoughts on this. If you would tell our listeners where can they find your writings so that they can can see what you think about it. Yeah, so I've been uh, writing about the abortion issue pretty extensively over at the Spectator World. Uh, that would be the the number one place to kind of find my my commentary on this. Okay, I will actually include in my show notes a link to your article about the Seinfeld episode and Roe v. Wade falling. Um, Grayson, I appreciate you coming on the show. I need to have you on more often just because I, I really do like your take on things. And you managed to stand your ground without being belligerent or, uh, you know, otherwise antagonistic. That's a rare art in this day and time. So thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, and thank you for having me on once again, Brian. It's always a pleasure.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's take a moment here to thank Sewing and Quilting Center, located in St. George, Utah, for being one of my sponsors. Man, I appreciate them so much, not only for sponsoring the show, but also for supplying people who have that itch to create via sewing or maybe embroidery or long arm quilting. Now, my mom has been a quilter for many, many years. She has not, uh, she's not done the long arm method, which means she's, she's kind of done the old school, right? You get the ladies together, they stretch out the big quilting frame and, you know, panel by panel, they put that quilt together. And it's not really my cup of tea. But the legacy that she has built and the the quilts that she has that has created that are handed down now from generation to generation, I guess what I'm saying is uh, this is about more than just kind of a fun hobby and a way to pass the time. There's uh, there's great purpose behind this, but there's also tangible reminders of those who came before us. And if that strikes a, a nerve within you that makes you go, you know what, that's really a cool idea. I know someone who would appreciate this. I would say put them in touch with Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. I've got a link in my show notes, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Click on it. They'll take care of you from there. Well, I know discussions about asset protection probably aren't the sexiest conversation you're going to have today. But uh, Larry Alton has a great article that says, you know, with the direction that our economy is headed right now, the middle class really needs to start thinking about asset protection. And I'm I'm not a guy who's sitting, you know, on a bunch of assets and thinking, yes, you know, I've got to make sure we do something with, uh, you know, all of the all of the riches that we've accumulated, but I worry, you know, inflation is definitely taking a toll among other things, but I want you to hear what uh, Larry Alton has to say here. Tell me if this if this, uh, you know, sounds reasonable to you. He says the US economy is suffering. The war in Ukraine, the lingering pandemic, federal stimulus money, and low federal interest rates, until recently, (laughs) they were low, they've all taken their toll. Now we're experiencing the highest inflation rate since 1981. Stock values are plummeting. Gas prices are hitting all-time highs of over $5. Some places are even adding extra digits to the pump meters in anticipation of $10 gas. And he says, this is why it's more important than ever for Americans to get a grip on their financial security. For all we know, we could be on the brink of another recession. Now, he says one way to boost your financial security is to guard the wealth you already have, which is asset protection. Larry Alton says asset protection means you protect your property against lawsuits or bankruptcy or creditor claims through legal means, not illegal means like concealment, contempt, fraudulent transfers, tax evasion, or bankruptcy fraud. I mean, those are options, but they carry a pretty high price tag. So let's see if there are some legal ways that you can protect what is yours. By the way, he also points out, since the poor have few assets and the wealthy are usually familiar with asset protection, It's actually the middle class that most need to learn about asset protection strategies. And he says the sooner you do it, the better. Once a claim or a liability occurs, it's typically too late to implement asset protection strategies. Courts will view them as evasive. You could get accused of engaging in fraudulent transfers. 
So these are just a few ways that you can start protecting your assets today. First thing he recommends is create an asset protection trust or an APT. These are trusts that are designed to shield your assets against creditors. Now, basically, it's giving ownership of your assets to a trustee and then designating yourself as the beneficiary. There are two kinds of APTs, domestic APTs and foreign APTs. That would be offshore trusts. Now, domestic ATVs are irrevocable, meaning you can't modify them once they've been created. They're only allowed in 17 states. But they come with unique benefits like state income tax savings when situated in a no-income tax state. Offshore APTs are simply APTs created abroad. You probably heard of some of these popular sites like the Cook Islands, uh, Nevis, or the British Virgin Islands. People use offshore APTs to make it harder for creditors to come after their assets and to lower their tax liability. This is where you get the term tax havens. But they're usually more expensive to set up. Number two, he says, leverage homestead laws. Many states have homestead exemption, exemptions rather that protect your primary residence and other personal property against creditors. Homestead protections can be unlimited, like in Florida, or limited, like in Massachusetts, where you can get an exemption of up to $500,000. Either way, though, homestead laws can be a great way to protect your primary residence from a forced sale. See, I think about stuff like this for my mom. You know, she's 87 years old. Her home has long since been paid off. But I worry about uh, property tax. You know, the yearly rent? What would happen if she was ever in a position where... She couldn't come up with that uh, that property tax. Be nice to be able to protect her from a forced sale. Number three, he recommends jointly own property under tenants by entirety. Tenants by entirety, or TBE, is a way for married couples to share ownership of property. Now, the combined ownership protects you against claims or liens directed only at you and not your spouse. The only way creditors can go after an asset held under TBE is to have a claim against both spouses. I presume it goes without saying you'd want to make sure that you're, you know, married to somebody you can trust. Number four, establish a family limited partnership, or FLP. That's a way for family members to pool money together for a business venture. Now, you can be a general partner, meaning you're responsible for running the business, or a limited partner, meaning you're only an investor. So what does this have to do with asset protection? Well, whatever you invest in an FLP is protected from creditors under the Uniform Partnership Act, or UPA. So it's another great way to safeguard your wealth. Plus, you can gift FLP interests tax-free every year up to the annual gift exclusion, which was $16,000 for 2022. Number five, he recommends use retirement accounts, a great way to grow your wealth and limit your liabilities. Most are protected against bankruptcy for up to a million dollars through U.S. federal bankruptcy laws and the Employment Retirement, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA. And employment-sponsored accounts like 401ks even have unlimited protection. So max out your retirement account contributions, he says, if you can. Number six, he advises get insurance, saying another way you can protect your assets is through various insurance policies. Now, you can invest in umbrella insurance to cover personal liabilities that go beyond regular homeowner, auto, and medical insurance. Or, if you're a physician, you could get malpractice insurance. 
That way, unhappy patients can't come after your assets. Finally, you may want to invest in life insurance to replace your income if you die. That way, your family will be able to keep paying the mortgage, the auto loans, and other debts and not lose valuable assets. So a couple final thoughts here. He says, these are just a few ways to protect your assets against creditors that might come in handy in a recession. Some other ways to protect your assets include investing in income annuities, accounts receivable financing if you own a business, and asset transfers to family. But the point is you need to start thinking about asset protection strategies now before creditors start coming after your money. If you wait too long, it might be too late. Again, so says Larry Alton. I know, for for a lot of us, myself included, a lot of this right over my head. But I would ask you to consider, you know, what have you done? You know, should should the the issuance of credit be tightened? I think number one, this, this is something, you know, that's not technical at all. Be out of debt. Or be as close to out of debt as you can possibly be. I think we're all about to learn a very painful lesson. And, you know, well, we all carry a little consumer debt. You know, everybody does. It's just part of the price of maintaining a standard of living. And I, I'm not wishing for anything ill on anybody, myself included. But I wonder if we're all going to get a little bit of a wake-up call soon. I wonder if we're all going to experience what it's like to have our standard of living come back down to earth because living on borrowed money, or at least having that, that credit out there, isn't going to be as feasible as it once was. That's not something I would wish for. But just looking at the current economic conditions, looking at at uh, some of the wholesale changes that could be coming, I think the biggest one for me is I'm concerned about our currency being changed right underneath our feet. And I know it will be sold to us as a necessity and probably, look at this, this is more convenient, and oh, look, it's digital. That means you don't have to worry about uh, you know carrying cash anymore. In fact, you don't even have to worry about carrying a credit card. I really believe we're going to see a point where it's going to be some little RFID chip or something of the equivalent that, you know, just digitally connects you to every point of purchase. Unfortunately, it's also going to record every dime you earn, every dime you spend. And there might even be some, who knows, you know, social credit conditions placed on your expenditures. Definitely, we are approaching a brave new world. I want to have some backups in place just in case. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, it's a crazy world out there. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of deliberate distortion of the truth. And if you're one of those people for whom the truth is a priority, you don't so much need to be told what to think as encouraged to think as clearly and independently as possible. Well, that's my job, ma'am, and that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to help uh, spur independent thought. So I've got some great content to share with you. First off, let me thank some of my sponsors, including 
Dixie Chiropractic. This is Dr. Ward Wagner. And if you or someone you love is dealing with pain, whether it be the pain of car accident injuries or neuropathy or bulging herniated discs, that's legit pain. Dr. Wagner and his office are there to help you. Now, this is particularly for my Southern Utah listeners. But I would say, based on the reviews I hear from my friends who have been going to Dr. Wagner, uh, when I hear terms like, this guy is a miracle worker, I think, you know, if you live within a reasonable driving distance, you should probably check it out. Go to DixieCairo.com. There's a link that I've provided in my show notes. You can just click on that. It'll take you right to his website, DixieCairo.com. Make an appointment with Dixie Chiropractic. Tell Dr. Wagner, hey, I'm here because Brian was talking about you. Well, let's jump right in here. I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, we are in a culture right now, which I would, I don't want to be gloomy. I don't want to be, you know, dissing on anybody here, but I would say our, our culture is in a state of decline. In fact, if I really were honest, I'd say we are in a dying culture right now. Just look around you. Look at what is accepted as normal. In fact, what is celebrated as normal. And uh, you can't help but come to the conclusion that, okay, we're, we're a little off the rails. Maybe, maybe a lot off the rails. And one of the greatest symptoms I see of this is that authentic manhood is dismissed as toxic or it's the cause for derision. And, you know, men need to be men. And if, if I'm speaking specifically to the guys here, but, you know, if you, if you have any reason to call yourself a man, you know, and to stand up and be a man, chances are you had some pretty good role models in your life who helped show you what that's like. Got a great article here from Rachel Liu. This was published on American Institute for Economic Research's website. Recovering the Path to Manhood. And the first thing she cites is, well, she says maybe it may have been the worst <clears throat> Super Bowl commercial ever. Chelsea Handler and Sarah Silverman competing with one another, trying to use their cell phones in preposterous places. So Silverman, still talking to Handler, is delivering a baby in an underground bunker. Handing the baby to the mother, she glances down and sees the sex. Sorry, she tells the parents, it's a boy. Now, Rachel Lou says, I flinched. I've never heard these words in the delivery room, but the sentiment is familiar. I've made the It's a Boy announcement five times, and some people just can't resist offering their condolences. This poor woman, will she ever get her girl? Well, they probably had a mental picture of me buried in fire trucks and plastic soldiers while baseballs crashed through my windows. Rachel Lou says, that's really not so far wrong, but I don't mind. Little girls are delightful, but I love my band of brothers. And she says, I'm very conscious of the tremendous honor and obligation of being, at least for the present, the defining female presence in the lives of six males. And I wouldn't have it any other way. She says, my eldest sons are just reaching their teens. Already our conversations are vastly more interesting than most of the classroom discussions I remember from my days as a college professor. All five of them were born within nine years, so they're truly growing up together. And their school teachers comment on what a tight-knit bunch they are. Some days when I'm working or riding, I break off for a few minutes and step out on the back deck, and the boys might be throwing a football or fishing off our dock. They might just be sitting around laughing at one another's dumb jokes. Who could witness that and feel sorry? She says, life doesn't get much richer. So she says, I regret nothing, but I do fear. Young men as a group are struggling mightily in our day and age. 
And she says, Silverman's tasteless joke has a frighteningly clear underlying logic. Parents who want their kids to make them proud and who doesn't are statistically better off having daughters. A daughter is likelier to become her school's valedictorian. A son is likelier to drop out of school or get arrested. She's likelier to get into and through a good college to find decent employment and live a stable life. He's likelier to become addicted to drugs or alcohol and six times likelier to commit suicide. Rachel Lou says, I feel indignant when I read how adoption agencies are struggling to place boys even in infancy, but I understand it. Boys may break your heart, and I have five. She says, this is why I read the boy books, literature discussing the struggles of boys. And she says, I need to understand this as fully as possible. I have a lot of boy lit on my shelf, but here I'll discuss five significant figures in this conversation. Warren Farrell, Leonard Sachs, Anthony Esselin, Jordan Peterson, and Brad Miner. Now, among these, only Peterson has not written an entire book specifically on the subject of manhood. But she says, I'll mention him nevertheless, because his influence on young men is particularly noteworthy. Now, I find it interesting. She points out, I disagree with all of these writers on certain points, and in some cases, the disagreements are serious. But nevertheless, she says, I look on them all with a certain gratitude. They care. To me, they all feel like allies in what's become my primary life's work, and that is the task of raising boys into good men. And I'm not going to hit every single point here, but she talks about Farrell and Sachs, Leonard Sachs, uh, making a, a great pairing. She says, for a quick read on the boy problem, these are two people you should turn to. Sachs is a psychologist and family physician. He's written three books on gender and youth development, Boys Adrift, is his latest. Farrell's a little harder to classify. In broad terms, it may be most helpful to describe him as a true-believing second-wave feminist, once deeply involved with the National Organization for Women, who ended up developing a masculinist counterpart to his 1970s feminism. Now, he isn't any sort of traditionalist. Indeed, he wants to dismantle traditional masculine ideals, at least in some key ways. But she says, still, he has been thinking about boys and men for several decades now. And she says, I find his arguments helpfully challenging, even when I think he's wrong. The boy crisis applies some of his long-developed thoughts on manhood to developmental issues for boys. So she says, Sachs and Farrell are, are interesting, both for their similarities as well as for their differences. As social scientists, they both present a lot of data giving rise to shared concern about boys' mediocre performances in school. Worldwide, boys are falling behind girls, especially in reading. Their test scores are lower, they're less likely to enroll in universities. The structure of modern schools seems uncongenial to boys' developmental needs. Now, they have a lot of interesting things to say about the masculine loss of purpose, they understand that many men today are suffering from a kind of existential crisis. Men aren't sure what role they're meant to play in society at large. Once, able-bodied men were genuinely necessary to keep their families and communities alive. Now today, robots do a lot of our heavy lifting. Our meat mostly comes from factories, not forests. We do need strong men to do a number of jobs, some of which are desperately seeking eligible workers. If a man wants employment... She says it's still very possible to leverage bulging biceps in more ways than one. Physical strength is no longer essential to the family's survival, though. 
nor does it command tremendous earning power. In market terms, manly muscle has lost its edge. Sorry, I'm just breathing a sigh of relief. (laughs) Okay, from here, Sachs and Farrell diverge. Sachs focuses on cultural phenomena that undermine discipline for boys, and we're talking things like video games, pornography, overindulgent parenting. His book feels like the adolescent prequel to Nicholas Eberstadt's Men Without Work and recommends stricter rules, fewer indulgences, less coddling. Farrell's work, or Farrell's focus, rather, is quite different in broad terms. He thinks boys' social and emotional development has been stunted by maladaptive masculine norms, which send boys charging off on chaotic manhood quests while the girls are becoming prudent, socially savvy, and self-aware. Now, Farrell is deeply suspicious of the cultural messaging that teaches boys to aspire to heroic self-sacrifice. I guess in his view, this understanding of manhood makes it hard for boys to navigate the complexities of interpersonal relationships and the nuances of our complex workforces. So they're incentivized to do dangerous and sometimes self-destructive things instead of developing the workaday healthy habits that so often make the difference between success and failure in modern life. She says Farrell's book is full of conversation starters for parents. He wants us to plumb the depths of our son's emotional and social lives. And, of course, his larger goal is to give men the same range of options and possibilities in life that feminists have, in his view, rightly demanded for women, and moving them towards self-actualization and a comfortable life. Okay, I'm going to come back to this because I want to hit a couple other highlights from Rachel Liu's article. But I want you to also consider... What are you doing for the young men in your life to pass the right kind of values on to them? Let's talk about that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like to thank the Heather Turner team from Patriot Home Mortgage for being a sponsor of this program. You can reach out to Heather if you are in the state of Utah or Idaho looking for a home loan. Call her, 435-703-4522. You can also click the email link I provide in my show notes. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And I know times are a little bit weird. Interest rates are starting to go up. But if you want someone on your side who can make things happen when time is of the essence, Heather's the one you want to talk to. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I'm sharing this article, and there is a link to this in the show notes. It's from Rachel Liu, published on the American Institute for Economic Research, or AIER.org website. Recovering the Path to Manhood. And she goes through a number of movers and shakers and their thoughts on on what needs to happen to to, to stop this idea that, well, you know, masculinity is toxic and basically our boys need to be a bunch of little feminized eunuchs who do what they're told and, you know, basically, you know, adapt to to a role very different from the role that uh, traditionally has been there for men in society. She talks about uh, Anthony Esselin. And his book, No Apologies, How Civilization Depends on the Strength of Men. And how he seeks to return to men a sense of their worth as men. And to give, the, and to give boys the noble aim of manliness, which is their due by right. 
No, that doesn't sound very inclusive to me. Well, listen up. Esalen wants to return men to their traditional role as society's protectors, providers, and citizens. He doesn't see technology, market forces, or women's education as significant factors in men's changing social roles. Instead, he thinks men have been sabotaged by resentful feminists and equality-obsessed social planners. Yeah, I would, I would kind of lean toward that explanation as well. The remedies he proposes are, first, we should renew our appreciation of men's unique potentialities. Second, we should embrace the, natu- the natural complement... Let's try this again. Complementarity between men and women. The first will keep the lights on in society at large. The second will keep romance sweet and domestic life stable. Now, I'm going to jump ahead here because I know there's a lot to cover. She talks about Jordan Peterson and Brad Miner raising the bar. And she says, I'm going to briefly mention a couple writers who do show some success at adapting traditional masculine ideals to contemporary circumstances. Now, she says, Peterson is by no means a favorite writer of mine. She says he can be mean-spirited, and he rivals Thomas Friedman in his ability to belabor obvious points. But those defects seem fairly trivial, though, when I hear testimonials from ecstatic mothers whose teenaged or young adult sons are cleaning their rooms, exercising, or wearing ties for job interviews, all under Peterson's influence. Why are young men willing to take this commonsensical advice from a Jungian psychologist and not from more traditional sources of wisdom like pastors or parents or youth sports coaches? Well, that's a fascinating question, but in the end, what matters most is they take it. Peterson's success calls into question Farrell's theory about the malign effects of heroic masculine norms. Now, she says Peterson loves heroic language, but somehow persuades his admirers to eat their vegetables and floss. Young men feel like he understands their problems, but he uses that rapport to urge them not to wallow in self-pity. That's commendable. Yeah, I have to admit, Jordan Peterson is, he's the kind of guy who would tell you, pick up the heaviest burden you can and start carrying it. In other words, let the, let the difficulties of life make you stronger, not defeat you and leave you sitting on the curb crying for somebody to bring you cookies and milk. Now, on the other hand, she says, Miners, the complete gentleman, is winsome, charming, and not the least belittling to women. His 10,000-foot history of chivalry obviously makes some very sweeping generalizations, but it has a serious purpose and a hopeful message. Like Peterson, Miner acknowledges that the world is hard, but he encourages young men to strive for excellence anyway. It's not easy to be a complete gentleman. If it were, what would be the point? Also, like Peterson, Miner wants young men to understand that it's always better to be manly regardless of the circumstances. Rather, regardless of the consequences. Fashions change, good deeds often go unrewarded. But a gentleman has the kind of integrity that motivates him to continue, even without applause or medals. This is the foundation of the purpose that so many men today crave. To find meaning, you must dedicate your life to something larger than yourself. Boy, does that ever ring true to me. Now, perhaps this is the real point, says Rachel Liu, threading its way through all of these authors that she mentions. A man is truly a remarkable creature with potential, to, with tremendous potential to do good. She says, this is what I see, watching my sons from the back deck, and the implicit realization of that potential may explain why boys from their earliest years are thirsting for a quest or spoiling for a noble fight. 
Now, this desire is not toxic, or at least it need not be. But realizing that potential is much harder than the lightsaber-wielding preschooler can possibly understand. It takes the discipline of Sachs and Peterson, the social savvy of Farrell, and the high-flown ideals of Esselin and Minor. And when that potential is not achieved, bitterness and despair often follow. She concludes by saying, boys can break your heart. I have five, she says, but I'm not sorry. I never let myself forget that the path to manhood is a hard one. And you get some competing messages, too. I like uh, I like the, the broad approach that Rachel Liu takes in this article. I've seen other approaches that are more like, well, you know, your manliness is, you know, measured by how much raw meat you're eating and, you know, how many enemies you've conquered. And, and you know, that might be a part of it. I guess it depends on time and place. But I think, the, to me, the key quality that, that young men need to have instilled in them is the importance of personal character and integrity. Yes, you know, physical strength is a good thing. Yes, you know, the willingness to stand up and charge into the flames when necessary, that's a good thing too. But I'm going to submit to you that the biggest battles that need to be fought right now are not, you know, running to to kill off the enemy at the gate or otherwise, you know, uh, defend the homestead. It's those individual battles taking place in every single person's heart. And I think we live in a time where right and wrong has become so negotiable and so, well, that's your truth, but I have my own truth to live up to. And uh, sometimes that truth gets really distorted. To be the kind of person who can be counted on to do the right thing, even when it's very hard to do, even when the majority of people are doing exactly the wrong thing. You can probably think of some examples of what that might look like. That's, to me, the epitome of what it is to be a good person. And yes, I, I, I'm using that term person deliberately. It's certainly part of, of what I think would, would qualify as being a great man, but we need great women as well. And I think helping, helping someone understand that importance of personal character will simply clarify for them all of those complementary differences and ways in which they can contribute uniquely. Now, I'm going to take it one step further. Sorry for everybody who this makes uncomfortable, but I think there's a larger plan, as in a divine plan, that requires us to to do the right thing and to, to live up to uh, the expectations of our Creator. Not because, you know, it's a demanding taskmaster who's, you know, asking us to do unreasonable things but because there are certain roles that we have been given for men it's as, as fathers and as providers and husbands. For women, it's as mothers and creators and nurturers. And I think when we do those things, we find that balance in life. We find that purpose in life. And in so doing, we make the world a better place and find a lot of happiness and peace in the process. I think there's a plan that uh, that involves all this i know it sounds crazy doesn't it this is the brian hyde show
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A special shout-out and thank you to HSLAmmo.com. Look in my show notes. There's a link right there under the sponsors section. Click on it and go shopping. My friend Spencer Worthington will keep you supplied with those common out calibers that, uh, that you need because HSL Ammo specializes in high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. It's a marvelous story, by the way, how he started that company. And I think it's impressive how he has kept it running in a time where other ammunition companies have really struggled. Partly due to demand, due to demand, and partly due to some increasing and weird uh, regulations. But man, Spencer is a guy who knows how to thrive, and just such a positive person. Very happy to have him as a sponsor. I hope you'll do some shopping with HSLAmmo.com. So I'm on a little bit of a theme in this hour of the show, and it really comes down to how are we passing our culture on? And I'm talking about the good parts of our culture. I look around and, you know, I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here and I don't want to make it sound too, uh, oh boy, we're all, you know, all is lost. But there's a lot about uh, our current culture that to me is just, it's, it's sewage. It's just, it's nothing that I would stand up and try to save. Now, there are aspects of, uh, of our heritage that I believe we really ought to uh, preserve, principles, practices that need to be passed on if we want to see any semblance of freedom in the generations that will yet be born or that are that are up and coming right now. So if you've reached that point in life where you're giving serious thought about uh, what kind of world will my grandchildren inherit, well, welcome to the club. Got an article here from Steve Daly. This is from AmericanThinker.com. As an American, I fear for our children's and grandchildren's future. And he has four examples of troubling trends that we are seeing right now. I want to share those with you, but I also want to talk about some of the potential solutions that go along with this. First and foremost, he says, the last thing any nation wants to see is the decline of its safety. Think an empire losing strength as barbarians are set to storm the gates. Sounds familiar. In our case, the signs of decay are there for anyone to see. But of course, there are none so blind as those who will not see. So here are four examples of troubling trends. He starts with leadership. Now he says specifically with Biden, America has a chief executive who must resort to cue cards to know how to enter a room, sit down and give pre-approved and scripted answers to reporters' questions while acting as if his answers sprang spontaneously from some depth of understanding. He's also a shallow president who seems to relish his power and doesn't shy from insulting and alienating half the the country with pugilistic threats. Now, he says, the scary part to me is that the president of the Russian Federation, Putin, can present an in-depth and even professorial speech to the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum plenary that expresses in fine detail his government's position on changing world economics and the war in Ukraine. Now, whether his assertions are valid or not, the message follows a certain logical progression. The difference between the two leaders, at least the difference they show in intellectual capacity, is scary. The second concern that he sees is fascistic protesters. Now, the New Testament states a house divided against itself cannot stand. Is America that house? 
He says a second civil war may already be underway. We just don't realize it yet. After all, Marxist extremists identifying as Antifa are physically assaulting Americans who participate in pro-America demonstrations. In the cases of Portland's Aaron Danielson and Denver's Lee Keltner, Trump supporters are getting murdered and Lee Keltner's killer walked away. How ironic that the so-called anti-fascist group Antifa is acting very much like how the Nazi brown shirts in Germany did in the 1930s. Moreover, this violence occurs in regions of America where courts and law enforcement are lenient and even sympathetic with their cause. And he says, I fear that this will only grow stronger with time as it did in Nazi Germany, aided by a media establishment that constantly promotes divisiveness over race, sexuality, and core constitutional rights and limitations. The next concern he mentions is the war on masculinity. The push to shame so-called toxic masculinity is a dangerous trend. In the 1950s, fresh from World War II, our young men grew up in an environment of extreme patriotism. The motion picture industry projected a culture of the American warrior, whether physical or when showing personal integrity against injustice. By the 1970s, following the American collapse in Vietnam, the media and popular culture favored male physical beauty, male models, and even hairstyling for men that went beyond the crew cut. Today's media culture brands a male with any kind of assertiveness as toxic. Hollywood's top male stars are pretty boys, pouting and preening even when in action roles. Now, war by nature is brutal. How can we find soldiers among a population of coddled teenagers? More recently, as the war in Ukraine has shown us, violence and brutality are still with us. We haven't escaped them yet. And finally, he talks about vanishing American credibility. In the world's eyes, our national credibility is gone. Who can forget Secretary of State Colin Powell's shameful testimony in front of the United Nations when seeking support for our resolution to initiate a war with Iraq? Powell cited the proof that he had weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. While we never found, when we never found the weapons, whether they hadn't existed or were spirited away, we looked painfully unreliable. And that image was cemented with the disgraceful bloody retreat from Afghanistan. So as our competitors increasingly challenge us, what is our leadership doing? How can we start coming together? How will we be surviving a decade from now? Okay, for what it's worth, I'd like to tackle that question, or at least at least give, uh, give a little bit of a, a slant on this. Don't look to government. That's the first thing I would recommend. If you want to see leadership and credibility put together... I mean, Steve Daly, I think, has listed some very solid concerns here. But if you really want to see these trends reversed, you're going to have to take a longer-term approach. And just, well, we'll just vote smarter in the next election and get the right people in here and everything's going to be just dandy. <clears throat> I don't know that uh, politics is going to fix the very problems created by politics. But I have absolute confidence that people who actually understand the principles involved in, in being a free people, and that is, you know, do you understand why does government exist in the first place? What's the proper flow of power within a government structure, at least a legitimate government structure? By the way, this is a, you don't have to, you know, go get a Ph.D. education at some Ivy League college in order to understand this. You do have to be willing to invest a little bit of time and a modest amount of effort to get your mind around 
the foundation that was laid before us by those who came before. So if you read things like Thomas Paine's Common Sense, if you read things like Frederick Bastiat's The Law, I mean, this is a great place to start, but if you really want to dig deep, you're going to have to start reading things like Montesquieu, The Spirit of Laws. You're going to read, want to read John Locke's treatises on civil government. You'll actually want to go dust off copies of what Aristotle had to say about politics and about ethics. You want to pick up some of Plato's dialogues. Because these are the things that influenced the founding generation. These are the things that influenced the people who came before us. And again, it's not like, oh, we just have to, you know, cut and paste whatever they said. The more important thing is to understand the things that they learned and realize they didn't all get it right. Even the founding generation, you know, there were some things, slavery, hello. You know, they they allowed it to persist, not because they necessarily thought it was a good thing, but they just weren't in a position to correct that wrong. But if you can't understand what rights are, by the way, here's the quick answer on that. Your natural rights are or what limit government's power over you. Once you understand that, once you understand what those natural rights are and to what they extend, you have a much easier time of drawing the line and saying, okay, government, that's not legitimate, or you, that's not something that you have a right or a power to exercise over me. But it takes courage. And the better you understand what your rights are, the better you understand what legitimate government is supposed to do as well as what it isn't supposed to do, the easier you will find it to stand up, claim your natural rights, use them, because without them without them being used, they're just going to atrophy and go away, and to defend them when necessary. Well, I don't know, man. I don't want to seem like some kind of extremist. Get used to it. You're going to be considered an extremist by anyone who wants to control you. The very fact that you're not, you know, jumping when they say jump is going to make you an extremist in their eyes. Now, me, I'll be looking at you with admiration going, all right, here's somebody who knows their rights. But you're going to have to pay the price to understand that. That means you, be, you better be ready to do some homework, read original sources, do original research, and above all, think deeply about these kinds of subjects. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I would encourage you to check out my show notes. Click on those sponsor links, including lifesavingfood.com. You want a little bit of peace of mind? Click on that link, and I promise you'll find some ways that you can achieve more peace of mind than what you currently have at this moment. Got a couple of things I want to cover in the closing segment here. Um, I know that uh, right now there's, there's a full-scale attack on uh, Juul Vapes. And I'm not going to try to encourage you, hey, man, vaping is cool, dude. But uh, but I do want to point out that the attack on Juul is, is not necessarily a good thing. Got an article here from Ryan Lau. This is from the Brownstone Institute. He says the attack on Juul is a scandal. 
They say that the progression of history leads to the demise, legal or social, of increasingly docile objects and undertakings like cars without seatbelts, firearm possession without jumping through some know-it-all's hoops. The cliff you used to jump off into the lake as a kid that now has a foreboding, if not heavily graffitied, barbed wire fence keeping out kids who dare to seek a good time, leaving your door unlocked, working 40 hours a week, if you live in the wrong country. (laughs) He says the bubble wrapping of society is underway. But a few days ago, the FDA skipped a step in an odd fashion, moving to ban a healthier alternative to smoking. Early Thursday, the FDA announced an order for Juul, the popular vape company, to pull all of its products from U.S. markets. Now, supposedly this is because Juul products do not meet the agency's professed public health standards and that the company in particular was at least partially responsible for the rise in youth vaping. Yet neither of these claims are even relevant, let alone accurate. If the FDA's so-called health standards include things like preventing lung cancer, why on earth are they targeting the devices widely known to be 95% safer or more than actual cigarettes? In this case, the science seems relatively clear. David Nutt's 2014 analysis of the relative risk of nicotine products concluded that the electronic nicotine delivery systems, or ENDS, formal term for e-cigarettes, were approximately 4% as harmful as cigarettes. Now, the FDA itself has found that tobacco-specific nitrosamines, one of the primary carcinogens in cigarettes, are only prevalent at rates 14,000 times lower in e-cigarettes. But the machine's wheels keep turning away from e-cigarettes while running oddly in parallel with the nick sticks that are actually killing your family members. So it's just a matter of time before we see a good old-fashioned pack of Marlboros marketed by our trusted government as a naturally sourced plant-based alternative to vaping. Now, he says the second justification, which was that Juul, which was claims that Juul was marketing their products to children, is about equally asinine. Sure, we as a species are hopelessly susceptible to a clever company's marketing techniques. Ever seen your essential weekly purchases at the front of the grocery store? But the one possible argument that the FDA could raise in this case is that making a lot of flavored vapes encouraged children to try them as they tasted good. So, do people over 21 hate horrifically juvenile things like mango and pineapple? Somehow that sounds unlikely. Besides, the point is null. These flavored vapes have been illegal for more than two years anyway. The FDA, therefore, is seriously trying to postulate the claim that children with an ability to get their hands on vapes will stop wanting to do so when one of many brands isn't on the shelf anymore. And what's more is they're showing clear signs of short-term memory loss. Had their fathers and grandfathers and even mothers and grandmothers never told them stories about sneaking into empty classrooms for a smoke between periods? Is this not a preferable scenario to the one the last several generations grew up with? If the agency had any interest in following the science, though we now know very clearly that this is little more than a talking point, its focus would be on the prohibition of actual cigarettes. Which brand has led to more deaths of users in the past 12 months? Marlboro or Juul? Newport or Juul? Camel or Juul? And a pattern starts to emerge, one that overpaid bureaucrats somehow haven't laid their eyes on. Prohibition of cigarettes is obnoxious, too. New Zealand's prime minister recently determined that she wanted to be the mother of everyone in the country, placing a ban on anyone born after 2009 from ever purchasing cigarettes at all. And in such a land of freedom and democracy, no less. Ryan Lau says their future holds 76-year-olds being carded, 
retirees forming a black market to supply slightly younger retirees with their fix. But at least it's consistent on some level. The country's authoritarian measure at least intends to get fewer people smoking. Well, the administrative step, he says, or state rather, skipped that step, instead targeting a popular brand of the very contraption that millions of people are using instead of cigarettes. But rest assured, can we really say with absolute certainty that the FDA is an honorable, forward-thinking institution without any corrupting influences nor financial ties to tobacco companies that have a vested interest in eliminating the first major competitors they've ever faced in their scandalously successful lifetimes. Boom! That is right on the money. Again, I'm not telling you, hey, you should probably get started vaping. But I do believe if you're going to, you know, suck stuff into your lungs, vaping is probably a safer alternative than flat-out, honest-to-goodness tobacco. Just something to consider. And frankly, I can't tell you how many people I've known who were smokers, who were, you know, tobacco users, who weaned themselves off of smoking and off of tobacco through vaping. Seems kind of foolish to take that away from them. All right, one final thought. Since there's still a lot of uh, hullabaloo going on about uh, about uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned with the Dobbs decision last week, One of the most powerful arguments against abortion can be found in the consciences of people who regret having had one. It's a terrific article posted on intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Jonathan Barnes, The Child I Almost Had. He says, I sit down to write this as yet another person expresses support on social media for those talking about how the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade is a tragedy. And he says, indeed, they should liken it to an infringement of some strange... Or, they, or rather, they'd liken it to an infringement of some strange natural freedom that all women should enjoy, as if abortion is a good thing. But he says, this time, though, the person supporting such ugly lamentations is one of my beautiful kinswomen. And it hurt, just as it hurts to see strangers or personal connections supporting such arguments. The pro-abort view takes just a small slice of the abortion question and makes it out to be the whole, in a faux, benign way that won't recognize any harms from abortion. But Jonathan Barnes says, I'm living proof that abortion doesn't just kill babies. It kills love and trust. And he talks about his girlfriend, Mary, saying, I can't be pregnant right now. I can't be pregnant running from the bathroom with a positive pregnancy test in her hand. I can't have a baby right now. Now, he says that he and his girlfriend were in a years-long committed relationship. Now she was pregnant. And he says, for a moment, I was excited at the news, but the severe negativity of her reaction left him crestfallen. He says, I actually kind of wanted to get her pregnant, even thinking when we'd made love recently and that and here it had happened. But he, she didn't want a child. And he says, my great desire had turned out to be one of her worst fears. And he says, I was afraid too, especially when I saw how she reacted to her pregnancy. In fact, I was heartbroken. We were in love. It hadn't occurred to me that she wouldn't want a baby. He says, we talked about marriage but she didn't seem convinced, feeling like there was no way to dissuade her, and because she was scared of this life change and the commitment that would go along with it, I went along with the killing. In fact, he says, I helped pay for it, accompanying her to the dreary abortionist's office in the college part of town. And he says, we stayed together for years after that. We tried, but never had a chance again at having a baby. So he says, decades later, I'm a 50-something single guy. No wife, no kids, no family around, and it's my own fault. He says, I did it to myself. 
So it's almost a reflex for me to disconnect with social media connections who are lamenting the loss of Roe v. Wade through the Supreme Court's recent decision, a wise decision supporting federalism, the system on which the U.S. was founded. He says, our baby, had he or she survived, would have been an adult by now. Maybe he or she would have been like his paternal grandmother who loved people so much, she chose to give birth to 12 of them. But he says, our baby never lived long enough for us to know if he or she was physically perfect or developmentally disabled or not likely to survive after delivery, as is the case in some abortions. But he says, such cases of babies with serious congenital defects or pregnant mothers who could die if they tried to give birth are truly the rare exception rather than the rule for why so many babies have been aborted. And here's the thing. He says, for people of conscience, there is no escaping our misdeeds, especially when it comes to not having a baby out of a choice of convenience. He says, we must live with our actions for better or for worse, having made that decision. He says, I never dreamed of how the whining do-as-you-will types online would elicit such a reaction of me, from me. rather. In fact, he says, as of now, I'm crying as I write this. I might have had a child or a grandchild by now, but I don't because I chose selfishness over love. He says, my ex has regrets too. Though we stayed together for years afterwards, she said, if we just had that baby, we would still be together. He says, we both regretted decisions so many people think is a simple choice every woman has a right to make. But it's not some harmless act as pro-abortionists claim. It is destruction. And he says, it's lives ended, wrecked relationships, love destroyed, and trust diminished. This is The Brian Hyde Show.